Hello and welcome everybody to According to Andrew number 108, a review of Metternich, Strategist, and Visionary. Uh, I just finished this book uh, 20 minutes ago, <laughs> uh, and it is a long one, uh, but it's really good, and I both recommend it and don't recommend it. It's kind of one of those weird things, so I kind of want to discuss it and uh, lessons I learned from it and all that stuff. But my normal review process, which is um, all-encompassing and over the top. So we're going to start with the review of the book. Um, it's excellent. It covers everything. Um, it goes through Metternich's uh, early life as a... So I. So it basically covers the full gambit, right? It covers him from uh, being a young kid to being a... Uh, <clears throat> it actually starts before he's a kid because... One thing that's really cool about this book is it talks about, like, the dynastic vision of his family. And so, that's something you don't get a lot, and it's something that kind of has forced me to start thinking about those aspects a lot more. Uh, you know, what, you know, there's the legacy that you want to leave for yourself, but then there's, like, okay, can you set yourself up and your family for a continued legacy? So, the first whole chapter is not about Metternich himself, but it's about the family line of Metternich and uh, what the steps they took to kind of climb over generations, that corporate ladder, or not corporate, but uh, aristocratic ladder, and uh, go from, you know, normal, everyday, or like just kind of petty nobles into being uh, princes of the Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire. And, well, actually, it was the Holy Roman Empire at the time. Um, and kind of all that that was uh, going on and all the craziness. Uh, so it goes through that, then it goes through his early life and all the craziness that's going around with the French Revolution, and then it goes through the conflict, as you can see on the screen there, um, with him and uh, Napoleon and how they butted heads and how there was kind of this uh, back and forth between them and they were uh, rivals in a sense, but you know they they both admired each other because uh, they were both men uh, of high caliber, right? But Napoleon could uh, they they came from different worlds, right? One was from an aristocratic world where. Uh, Metternich saw Napoleon as this usurper, and uh, Napoleon saw this old um, feudalistic society as anachronistic and um, needing to, to crumble and stuff like that, and, and kind of the, the war between those ideas, and, and we're kind of still living with some of the consequences of that today, with, um, you know, the, the ideas that were pushed forward in Napoleonic uh, and the French revolutions of equality and freedom and stuff like that, a lot of that, some of that goes back to the American Revolution and, and some of it's the French Revolution. Um, I actually listened to, at Freedom Fest, there was a good presentation about how um, the French Revolution's foundations were uh, more in the Romantic period um, and despite claiming rationality were more emotionally based, whereas uh, the Americans were more rationally based and that's why you have such uh, two different uh, constitutions and people that come out of it. Um, I definitely agree with that to uh, an extent, but I also think it's it has a lot to do with the the people and the, I mean the constitution is its people kind of thing and and how that develops. And that was an interesting point. There's another book I read called Bismarck. I was going to do a review on it, but I didn't get a lot out of it, um, so I didn't. But one thing that was noted in that book that was very interesting was um, how people in Europe understand uh, uh, Americans understand a constitution as something that is given down from on high. Uh, it's something that's written by the elites uh, in our time, our founding fathers, and kind of this is what 
defines what is to be an American kind of thing. Whereas if you compare that to the uh, English Constitution, which is what um, basically and everyone in Europe kind of looked up to as the premier constitution, uh, it was something that was formed over generations and took a long time. And it was basically, it, it was written in, it was the things that were written in paper of how the people were. So it was, you know, English society uh, valued um, hard work and freedom and, uh, you know, capitalist ad, uh, ad, uh, ventures and, and things like that. And so the, there was a very different constitution there. They also had the advantage of being an island nation so they could get away with some of these more uh, radical ideas during these time periods. Um, whereas when, uh, when geopolitics is an existential threat for you, that's not something that you're really allowed to do. And that's why you see such a variance between, um, continental powers, powers that are, uh, land-based versus maritime powers, uh, basically island nations, because they, the Navy allows them to secure their borders in a way that you just simply can't, uh, in a continental system. So, that's kind of the first half. And the reason I actually was reading this book was actually more for the second half, because Metternich's in this interesting time period, in this transition, that we're kind of living, he was in an epochal moment, which we are kind of living through ourselves right now, but in a different sense. So, uh, his thing was uh, basically... French rules up, there's a lot of constitutionalism that was flowing throughout the uh, continent, and then along with that was this idea of nationalism. And people always had their national identities, but they, in the feudal system, uh, because things were a lot more decentralized and uh, fractionalized, it didn't matter as much who was the ruling uh, party at kind of the top of the pyramid, because um, the, the things that happened at the top of the pyramid didn't affect you as much. And you were much more, it was a much more localized system. It was much more, uh, feudalism is very close to uh, federalism in that regard. Uh, so it didn't matter as much. And so you kind of see this shift. And so Metternich's this interesting person because he straddles both this line of, uh, I am uh, of the nationalist persuasion, I, I believe in nationalism, but he was kind of against that and kind of the steps he took to uh, dissuade that and, uh, keep things under lock and key, not lock and key, but uh, basically hold the Austrian Empire together because if he allowed nationalism to flourish, he would it basically would be the end of Austria as we know it. And they had already lost the Holy Roman Empire uh, with through Napoleon's uh, exploits and all that stuff. So, uh, but before we go on too long, uh, this is a really interesting quote that I thought uh, that one of his mentors gave him that I thought was very exemplary of how Metternich lived his life, and it's something that I think is uh, something to inspire to yourself. Uh, this, his uh, mentor in this was, name is uh, Vought, uh, Nicholas Vought is his full, full name. Uh, he told him, uh, your intellect and your heart are on the right road. Uh, persevere therein, so in practical life, the lessons of history will guide you. Your career, however long it may be, will not enable you to see the end of the conflagration, which is destroying the great neighbor neighboring kingdom if you do not wish to expose yourself to reproaches never leave the straight path you will see many so-called great men pass you by with their swift strides let them pass but do not deviate from your path you will not catch up with them and be it 
only your path and theirs will cross uh, when they retreat. And I think this is so emblematic of kind of the time that we live in because there's so many people and it can be very distracting and disheartening when you see um, those who aren't as good as you or uh, are obviously incompetent or things like that. Basically, um, the cream doesn't rise to the top. It's uh, people who kiss ass and uh, are basically don't make a fuss or, or don't make a stir. They're the ones that get promoted. Uh, or people who are willing to basically sell their soul to the devil to are the ones who get promoted. And so it can be disheartening uh, to kind of keep pushing forward. But that was something, whether or not I disagreed with uh, kind of the visionary aspect of Metternich or not, uh, it seemed that he had a very strong uh, moral guidepost and always kind of considered morality first. In that regard, uh, I can kind of see him as a kindred spirit in a sense. As, and a good example of how to, if you were going to have a political career, how to lead a good uh, and strong political career. Is that going to get you very far in, a, in the current political environment? Probably not. But, um, you know, we're living through a time of uh, turmoil and stuff like that. And so there is a possibility that someone with the constitution of someone like a Metternich could rise to the top um, and, uh, you know, always always use morality as a, a guiding voice. And by no means was he a uh, perfect person. Uh, he was known as a womanizer and certainly was um, to a certain extent. And But he also suffered a lot of uh, real hardship. Uh, and that's something that kind of pushed forward. So they talk about his, his family life and stuff like that. And yeah, they go into uh, the mistresses and stuff like that that he had. But he also had um, three wives by and 12 children. And all he outlived everything. All three of those wives uh, didn't divorce any of them. They all passed uh, due to unexpected circumstances, which was very uh, heartbreaking. The longest one lived to 49 at the most, and he lived to 70, 70 or 80, um, 75 to 80. Uh, so he outlived all of his wives. Uh, of his children, only uh, he had 12. Only uh, four of them, I think, made it to adult uh adulthood made it to you know their 50s or 60s or something like that i think only like two or three made it ended up making it to um you know living to 60 70 years old uh a lot of his kids many of his kids died when they were very young it was pretty common for that time kind of time period but on top of that you had a lot of kids uh that would die when they're like he had a daughter that he lost when she was 16 he had a son that he lost when he was about 30 um and a lot of this was just due to uh, disease. In fact, I, I think all of them were due, due to disease. Uh, there wasn't any, like, assassinations or um, none of them were in, like, a military campaign and got killed that way. Um, and so that's that's a, that's an amount of loss that I think a lot of us uh, are going to have a hard time kind of relating to and, and comprehending. Uh, I don't even have, like, you know, a wife and family currently. So uh, it's something that, you know, you can kind of sympathize with, but... Uh, have a hard time relating with, but I have a feeling that um, due to certain uh, jabba jabba uh, things and stuff like that, that is something that is going to be experienced by a lot more people, and uh, if that is something that is in your future, um, to, you know, kind of, maybe this is a way to kind of reflect and, and remember other people had uh, really hard times and were kind of given a tough road in their path, and, um, they pushed forward. They were able to still build a family and through the hard times. 
and so uh, you can too. And you know, Metternich lived in a, a very tumultuous time, uh, like we do right now, and he still managed to build a family. Uh, his family got dispossessed of all their possessions like three or four times within his lifetime. He was basically uh, exiled like four or five times, and he still managed to kind of do what he he was able to and and uh, pull himself together, pull his family's finances together, and and build up his family and and uh, still serve the state in a high capacity, which is uh, very impressive um, and and something to be admired. <clears throat> uh, so I think that covers everything in terms of uh, the text. Uh, like I said, it goes through the whole thing. Uh, the most interesting part for me personally was a lot of the stuff that dealt with um, German nationalism and, and kind of how that caused a fraction within the, the Austrian... Uh, psyche, because you there was a, a good chunk of Austria that was uh, Germans. They wanted to join with this greater German idea, but then there's a lot of factions within Austria that weren't. You had the Bohemians, you had the Hungarians, you had the Czechs, the Slovaks, um, the Croatians, the uh, Italians were in there. Um, I, I'm sure there's a bunch of other ones that I'm not even... The Serbs were probably in there. Uh, some other ones that I'm forgetting. And so uh, that caused a, a real conundrum within the society yourself and you can kind of see that in america today as well so that's uh something to consider um so i think this is a really great book the thing is it is 750 pages and it is excellently excellently written um it's it's a long read it's a good read it's it's you know it's a biography to a certain extent it's going to be dense there's no real getting around that but he uh wolfram wolfram simon uh who wrote this book wrote it absolutely excellently and so if you are interested in anything that has to do with Metternich um, or that time period I think this is a great book to read if you don't necessarily have a reason to read this book I don't think there's necessarily a reason to read it um, so that's kind of the like uh, I'll, some of the other books I'm like oh here's all the lessons you can pull from like discourses uh, by Machiavelli I think there's so much in there that um, it's like worth reading regardless, right? Um, this one's kind of not as much. Like, if you're interested in this topic, I highly recommend it. If it's if it's not something that really particularly interests you, then yeah, probably give this a pass. Um, but uh, you know, if you're ever interested in that kind of time period, this might be a good. Um, and you and you like having kind of uh, individual perspectives on the whole thing. This might be the uh, the book to kind of go to. Uh, now for the various notes that I took on the whole thing. Um, one second. So. <laughs> Oi. All right. Sorry about that. Hopefully I didn't blow your ears out. Uh, so Metternich is in this interesting person because he's kind of like a Kissinger. Um, let me see if I can find my thing that I wrote on that. Uh, gosh dang. Okay, uh, Metternich was the Kissinger, Kissinger of his day. While his initial policies worked for the crisis at hand, uh, it set up another crisis in which the revolutions of 1948-1949 uh, were fueled by nationalism and liberal sentiment. But uh, what I mean by that is basically uh, what was known as the Metternich system was the, the Congress of Vienna that was set up after the Napoleonic era. Basically, they had ousted Napoleon and all the great powers kind of came together and it's like, okay, how, how are we going to divvy up uh, this new 
borders need to be redrawn. How are we going to kind of divvy this up so it's fair? Uh, how are we going to make sure that, um, you know, the last 20 years of war doesn't just continue indefinitely and uh, ruin us all? And uh, there's a lot of people at this time that had uh, just come off the 30 years war. Um, and that was just basically a never-ending uh, conflict that ground all of the economies and societies within it to uh, poverty and and destitution because there was just you know the, there was just constant war so it destroyed all the countryside and destroyed all the towns and killed lots of people and and all this stuff and so there's various people like older parts of the generation um, could kind of see that coming with the Napoleonic Wars and so there was some of this that kind of bled into um, the thinkings and the and the attitudes and the perceptions of uh, of the Metternich uh, system. Well, actually, the Thirty Years' War was the 1600s, wasn't it? Hmm. All right, that might not be accurate, but um, that was the closest thing in approximation to this, right? So you basically have the Thirty Years' War that bleeds into the thinkings of the Napoleonic era, which then bleeds into the thinkings of uh, World War One, right? These are like kind of three big um, conflicts that are spread out by about a century from each other and so there's a lot that's changed in that time period uh but there's a uh but the in-between time there was a lot of work that was done so that said event couldn't happen again except uh history is cyclic so uh eventually that was going to kind of come back and and end up in conflict again uh so yeah so that's that's kind of where we're at and that's so that ended up setting up the Issues that developed in 1848, 1849 with the nationalist uprisings uh, and the liberal sentiments um, on top of, you know, liberal ideologies getting spread throughout all of Europe because uh, Napoleon's armies crossed, marched across all of Europe and uh, people talked to each other. Uh, this is mainly driven by the debts accrued during the Napoleonic Wars to set off a downward trend uh, in the Turch and Kaleidodynamics model uh, while the prize shrinks to so the elite main t uh, for the meat. So, for the elite to maintain their standard of living, they have to squeeze the lower classes, along with uh, competition to get into those elite circles, because basically uh, the lower classes have no way of uh, surviving themselves, so their only real option is to try to get into the elite. So, the competition for that shrinking pie increases uh, on top of the elites themselves having more, like, as time goes on, having more children, and so therefore the elite group grows. Uh and uh, and the positions, therefore, if they stay the same, then there's more competition for the same positions, or if they shrink, then it's also an issue. Uh, uh, the post-Napoleonic era is similar to today, as uh, they had major uh, inflation issues due to the devastation caused by the war and the shrunken workforce due to so many men dying in the wars, uh, which is another interesting observation that I had. Uh, then Metternich had this very interesting point, and it's something that I've wrestled with quite a bit uh, myself, which is, uh, theater theoretically, there are only nation-states, but practically there is almost exclusively multinational states. Uh, Metternich. Uh, while this is true, the nation... So, the issue that you kind of always run into is, at what point do you stop subdividing, and at what point do you say, okay, this this is what constitutes a nation. And so, like, the nation, uh, you know, it's basically the far, the shorthand is, it's the farthest extent of the family. Uh, it's a, a peoples that is defined by um, tradition, culture, uh uh, blood, uh, 
shoot, what are the other things? Oh, religion and... Ah, gosh, I need to write these down. Your bloodline, your tradition, your culture, your religion, and... Something else. Anyway. Uh, well, it is true that the nation... Uh, so, while I find this true, uh, I still think that the nation should be run by those which the nation-state uh, represents. Uh, while it's unfortunate for those who have no nation-state, and while hopefully they can establish one at some point, uh, they should in no way be allowed power within the system. Uh, they should be afforded protections uh, if they have no other home, so as to not be trampled by the nation in which they are a guest, and thus they should uh, be treated as such. It is an imperfect system, but we live in an imperfect world, and I believe skewing things in favor of the nation is better than the alternative uh, offered by empire. So my thoughts on that. Uh, on page 567, second paragraph of the new section, uh, it discusses uh, how the national spirit of Germany was fostered by the student body, uh, which is kind of interesting. This is due to them having connections and networks across Germany, as various German confederation uh, universities were open to all of them, uh, thus being the point on which the national spirit grew out of. It almost seems like an inversion, uh, though, as nationalism at this time was an internationalist uh, movement because all of these different... So the students saw themselves as German, but everyone else in Württemberg and Saxony and Prussia and... Uh, what are some of the other ones? Uh, Bul uh, Bavaria. All of them saw themselves as, you know, Bavarian or... Uh, from Wurttemberg or Prussian or Saxon. Um, and so it's through these student movements that all this stuff happens. And I find it interesting that you always seem, uh, in a lot of revolutionary things, especially liberal ones, it's always the student body that pushes this stuff. Um, it was a body politic... Uh, doo -doo -doo. It was... Uh, moving the body politic to a greater centralization. This differs from the current nationalist movement, which seeks to decentralize and restore national sovereignty. Uh, the question uh, that arises is how restoring national sovereignty should go. This ties into Menerich's thought on the manner in which states they can uh, find a way to divide a people's further, and so they have a reasonable-sized body politic. It would inherently have to be an empire in some capacity. That is kind of his perspective, that uh, since you will always have a composite of people, um, the nation-state is a misnomer, and you will always, in technicality, have an empire. Uh, which, if you look at how the various uh, nationalities are scattered throughout Europe, uh, does kind of make sense to a certain extent. And if you look at how uh, nationalities are scattered throughout America, that is also probably going to be the case when, if uh, America breaks up. So, maybe things won't be as hardline as I had maybe perceived them to be, but we'll see. Uh, it is interesting that revolutions always start with the students, seemingly. Uh, when I say this uh, started, I mean that they're the foot soldiers of the revolution that go and act and get things rolling, and they are the interface between the thought leaders of the revolution and the revolution as a general movement. They translate the ideology from the abstract to tangibles for everyday people. They disseminate the teachings of the revolution uh, till it enters the zeitgeist. Their actions are the core backbone of how revolutions happen. The Russian communist uh, 
revolution was started by students. China, they had a big influence. France and America, I am less sure about. Apparently, Germans' unification was kickstarted by this group. Also, revolutionary ideas from critical race theory to the trans-right movement were leveraged through the university system. So this makes sense, as universities are where the elite and elite aspirants are uh, to be found. Thus, if the revolution is a fight between multi, multiple elite factions, the most likely place to find disgruntled leads are those young ones who uh, seek their ambitions, or see their ambitions blocked on all sides by the current system. This leaves them to the conclusion that toppling the current regime is the way to get a shot at fulfilling their ambitions at all, and so the risk to reward balance is in favor of revolution. Um, also, something interesting that I, I discovered from this book is uh, book burnings were apparently a tradition in Germany for a long time. Uh, as Germans attempted to unify, uh, it destroyed literature whom uh, were whose literature of those who were its enemy. Among those was a uh, Jewish uh, guy named Saul Osher who preached tolerance, cosmopolitan, and universal education. What does that sound like? It's the same crap that's being preached right now, and it's the thing that is undermining America. Um, so, as you can see, this kind of um, idea of tolerance has always been pushed by those who look to uh, subvert and push um, degenerative behavior within a society. Um, tolerance is not a virtue. Uh, so, he was against the fraternal... This uh, Saul guy was against the fraternal organizations that formed uh, formed uh, communal bonds with the nation and called the celebration of German identity uh, anti-Judaic. Uh, so, as you can see, it's the same playbook that we kind of see a lot out of... Um, you can see the same play... Like, whenever someone uh, brings up something against Israel or anyone that is potentially Jewish, they just say anti-Semitism... Uh, at, was it 1840? Like, nothing's changed. <laughs> and it's over 100 years. So, uh, almost 200 years. So, as you can see, since nothing changes, don't worry about that kind of stuff. Um, and that just crashed. So, hopefully, we can kind of keep going. Uh, fraternities were formed and founded at a time of turmoil in Europe and used as networks that enabled the social change required to form Germany into a singular nation. This is why these meeting places uh, like the Red Pill communities uh, or other uh, communities are a threat and why fraternities were converged in the American university uh, universities in America because when you do that kind of stuff, it um, it's a way to consolidate power and control within the system. Um, and so that's why we kind of see a demonization of these outside groups because those were the groups that helped um, kickstart and run the current system uh, in uh, America, or is it America? Um, in, in Germany and, and in a lot of these other places. Uh, so Metternich straddles this weird line uh, where he represents both the current order and maintains the status quo. Um, thus he serves as a guide for maintaining power um, but he's kind of an interesting position because currently, uh, within our system, uh, people like myself and, and are not happy with the current system, and so they're looking to, uh, switch out the system for a new system, and it, it kind of, uh, runs into this issue. Uh, 
one issue that I should clarify that I, I kind of so Metternich is the representation of who we currently have in power the Nancy Pelosi's the Bidens and all that stuff and I think he was a really good statesman I think well as I had said Metternich is a good example of like a Harry or a Henry Kissinger and stuff like that and he was kind of like the last great statesman um, and so what we get into later throughout Metternich is when he's basically forced to retire, uh, you have kind of these um, people who are interested in their own gain and uh, not clearly as good as at the, the game of politics kind of take over. And that's when you see the decline of Austria. And so you're seeing similarly, uh, you don't have, whether or not you agree with how Kissinger handled things, he was a good politician and good geopolitical strategist. And uh, when you don't have someone like that in there, you're seeing the decline of America. You're um, also seeing the decline of Austria. Uh, there's certain outside forces that even someone who's uh, brilliant might not be able to write the ship on, but those are the kind of issues that uh, we're dealing with right now, and so it, it kind of puts you in an interesting paradigm. Uh, let's see. One of the things that... One of the mistakes Metternich makes is that he attempts to bottle up the problem of nationalism, which is what it boils over in 1848-1849, and one of, the, one of the things that kind of forces him out of power. Um, is the same issue that the current ru ruling classes in America have now. Uh, but organic movements can't be bottled up, and they can only be redirected by trying to squash the movement inherently creates more dog dogmatic adherence to it and increases its anti-fragility. Um, so... A good example of a redirect would be like a progress, the progressive movement. Oh, here we go. Uh, the populist movement was successfully worn down by the establishment of uh, creating internal f uh, factions and competing objectives that cause victory to fail to materialize. So it can be done, but even so, the movement popped up again as a progressive movement, but this time it was established. Uh, the establishment was ready for it and was successfully used it and redirected it. And so that's when uh, people like... Uh, Cargill and uh, Rockefeller and stuff like that were able to come to prominence and, and took over as kind of the new elites as industrialization took over in America. And um, though that elite faction came to prominence within the American uh, society. And you see kind of a similar thing in Metternich, sort of. It's more, it's it manifests itself more in factionals within Austria. <clears throat> uh this is an interesting quote from uh, Menerdik that I thought. Uh, Menerdik knew no conspirators who are miserable and there are no conspirators uh, who are as miserable and superficial as professors, individually as well as taken as a group. Uh, they are men of theory and put forward uh, propositions, but revolution was not a theoretical pursuit. And so this is kind of how what I was talking about earlier, where uh, professors never are people of action, and that's why they propagandize and um, basically create soldiers for the revolution via the student movement and they never actually do anything and then they, they send uh, people out to um, to take over. Uh, there was a uh, great quote, I forgot who said it, but it was, it was someone who was an elite within the, the circles, and they, they had this uh, war in the palaces, peace in the shacks. Uh, this is a great example of the ruling class disconnect with the greater society. Uh, what is this peace that you speak of? Uh, when general war is called and these people of the shacks are called on to die in the thousands, is there ever any concern for these people? Uh, at least the violent actions against 
uh, this was uh, in response to an assassination that happened to someone of the ruling class. Um, at least these violent actions against the ruling class are directed at a people whose actions warrant this type of consequence due to holding the reins of power. If the ruling classes are removed from violent consequences for their actions, then they become unaccountable and corrupt, which, considering that this was the Bourbon monarchy, oh, that's right, uh, I can almost guarantee that this is the case. The French Revolution, Napoleon, uh, happened for a reason, and it was mainly predicated on the poor uh, monarchical management and the insulation of an insulation from the consequences of those decisions. So that kind of covers that part, and then let's see what else I had for notes. I have a lot of notes. Um, oh, is that everything? Oh, no, hold up. Okay, here we go. Um, so Metternich was kind of against... So they also played out at the very... Towards the end of the book, this... Um, power game that happened between Metternich and Kalwart, and Kalwart was uh, using all the underhanded uh, tactics, smearing him, doing everything that he could to uh, get him out of power, and eventually it was successful um, in securing his power initially, and then being able to force Metternich out of power in the end. Uh, but it's interesting that Metternich was resistant to using underhanded tactics to dominate the political arena via slander and the like, but was fine with using censorship and secret police when it came to controlling the general population. Uh, so it's kind of a I guess it's different when you're dealing with people of your class. It also could be an instance where uh, not all speech is good kind of thing, and he believed it that slander and stuff like that wasn't um, was the thing that undermined uh, rule of law, like uh, Machiavelli believed and showed in um, how Rome conducted their business. But, uh, yeah, it's interesting that Prussian used uh, free trade as a means to combine uh, dispersed German states into Germany, uh, which is also something they're attempting to do again in the EU. Uh, the shift from a feudal system to a state system was effectively changing from a private property residence to a public one. Um, so this is an issue that Metternich ran into when dealing with the Austrian uh, monarch, is he wanted to kind of shift the monarchy into a state-run thing, but that's basically having the monarch give up... Uh, possession of all of his lands and turning all of that land basically to public property. And it's kind of a weird transition, right? Like when you see the state and basically most all the territory within it as your own private property, uh, that is a kind of fundamental shift within your head that I can imagine being kind of hard to want to give that kind of um, ownership up to a certain extent. Uh, he wanted to do that to help clean up the running and uh, administration of the state, but this was just kind of something that the crown was never going to give up, and so it kind of created this friction within between him and the, the royals, and was one of the things that ended up uh, having him fall from power at uh, towards the end of his life. So that was uh, kind of interesting. Uh, Metternich had an interesting comment on American democracy uh, that I think is very uh, telling of the times. I do not know uh, where it will end, uh, nor how it will end, but it cannot end in a quiet, ripe old age. So, uh, you know, we're at year 250-ish of our, our life uh, as a country in terms of uh, the United States of America, and things are not looking so 
uh, good. So, yeah, we'll see. Um, then later on, uh, Metternich ended up getting prosecuted and brought up on basically false uh, tax charges by after he was thrown out of power um, by those within the uh, crown. So it was interesting to see. Uh, let's see if I have a note on that. Yeah, okay, we'll get back to that. Um, and it, it was it had a lot of the same ringings as to what happened to Trump with the special prosecution when he's in power, a lot of the stuff that they're doing to him uh, now that he's out of power. Uh, and it's a slow, drawn-out process that is intended to smear one's character simply through being uh, conducted, the implication being that if they were clean, this commission wouldn't be needed. Uh, the proceedings are drawn out long enough so that the smear campaign can at least... Uh, last as long as possible and allow people to forget the original reason for starting the commission in the first place. That way, uh, when the results come out and they are f and they are far off the mark of the original goal of the commission, no one remembers and people just move on with their lives as the damage is done and it cannot be reversed. This is why Machiavelli was so hardcore against the type of slander which, uh, within a society uh, as it allows the least moral, uh, or as he puts it, uh, with the least amount of virtue to rise to the top. <clears throat> um, and then Metternich has an interesting... Metternich was always a big fan of England, and it, he has this quote where he's like, if I wasn't... If I could choose which country I was from, I believe I would choose to be an Englishman. Um, so England, the freest country in the world, uh, because of the most orderly. Metternich clearly understood freedom in the old Christian sense of uh, self-restraint, from vice and not from the Luciferian sense of do as thou wilt, which is was currently sweeping the continent in 1848. That that was the foundations of the French Revolution and uh, the like. Um, he also understood that the foundation of the English aristocracy does not lie with uh, in this concept of nobility, but in the concept of property. This constitutes an equality which is uh, useful through its successes one that elevates rather than degrades as the equality of misery does. And here you can kind of see uh, Metternich articulating kind of the de deviation between a capitalist versus a communist ideology to a certain extent, uh, an egalitarian versus a uh, hierarchical um, society. Here again, Metternich shows the difference in the intellectual roots of these concepts as they are understood in England versus the con in the continent. This is basically the description of the difference between capitalism and communism uh, before these ideas were fully formed. Um, additionally, this is the foundational roots of American nobility as well, which is why uh, property has played such a prominent role within American society and the psyche so uh, for so long and will continue to do so for as far as I can tell. If we add to our understanding of the add to this our understanding of cladodynamics, uh, which is the cycle of uh, history, and understand that the elite class is becoming overcrowded as more of the lower class rush to try to make it to the elite status through uh, the purchase of homes, because that's one of the ways that you uh, basically get into being being considered part of the upper class, um, and uh, college degrees, which is effectively just titles of nobility. Uh, that is uh, that is the driving force behind these spikes in price of the top, uh, on top of the economic factors. So prices are, of homes are going up by a crazy amount and college tuition is going up by a crazy amount. And there's economic factors driving that, but there's also this um, drive to try to get into the uh, political aristocracy within our society because um, 
as someone not in the aristocracy, in the commoner class, um, the opportunities to be successful are being squeezed. At least that's the perception. Um, in fact, it could be seen as the economic factors being used to intentionally try to edge out more people of the er, uh, aristocratic class. So as prices of homes go up, you have less competition to get into the aristocracy, and as the price of college tuition goes up, you also have uh, less people that can afford it, so there's less pressure um, on the aristocracy. So those are kind of two aspects. Uh, the political battle between Metternich and Karlwatt, uh shows why empires do not work. Austria, as a great power, started a decline because of the obstructionist policies of Karl Rott. These obstructionist policies, some of which I agree with, namely that he was anti-free trade, um, were based on how it uh, benefited Bohemia above all else, uh, which was a um, one of the smaller states within the Austrian Empire. One of the sub-states, I should say, not smaller. Um, and many times came the expense of Austrian's position as a great power and its influence within uh, Greater Germany. <clears throat> this makes sense because uh, to join within the other German states into a Greater Germany would have diminished the power and influ influence of Bohemia, which is not German. The national sectarianism always happens uh, within an empire and can be seen in America today with the election of the people like Elian Omar, uh, tribe Trump's ideology always. Um, Metternich and Bismarck's views on geopolitics is inherently non-globalist, something I wanted to kind of point out. Uh, while they created systems of communication between various powers of Europe, this is this is and always will be a necessary function of foreign uh, minister. For without these, the lines of communication war lines of communications wars will break out, and while war sometimes is necessary, it is generally to be avoided. While they differ, uh, while they differ, where they differ is that they are not, they did not, through this system, look to create superstructures on top of these communication lines in which the various powers would then be subordinated. Uh, these, those are what the globalists attempt to do with systems like NATO, the UN, and the IMF. Supranational organizations that are not accountable to anyone but those pulling the strings. At least that's how the globalists would like to be, uh, like it to be, uh, but that level of centralization is not possible. And uh, lastly, I wanted to kind of leave off with something from the book as a way to kind of wrap this whole thing up. Uh, so as you're reading the book, and especially in the last kind of couple pages, you kind of, it really does feel like um, you've left an era behind, right? It started with all the turmoil and stuff like that of the Napoleonic era and all the craziness that's happening with um, the revolutions of 1848 and stuff like that. And uh, finally, as Metternich's life's starting to wind down, it, it feels like, you know, that was the old old way and we're kind of coming into a new uh, as Metternich's passing off in this this world and stuff like that uh, there's there's new people there's new systems Bismarck's uh, gonna be the big next name that's um, dominates the continent and you have these new people that are kind of coming in and, and taking up the reins and uh, you know the the era of Napoleon is behind us and you know the the 19th century is ahead of us or the 20th century is ahead of us and uh, World War one and all that stuff and a lot of the national unifications and all that stuff are are kind of coming up and and it just it, it kind of has this emotional and um psychological like shift that you can kind of read in the pages and it's i i can't think of a book that's kind of captured that before where it's like you know 
you read it and you can tell like this is the end of an era kind of thing um which you know you can you always kind of get that when you end a book to a certain extent but i thought the way that this was captured in this book was really well done so like i said uh this is metternich strategist and visionary uh it's an excellent book if you have any interest in metternich um though i, I definitely recommend it um those were kind of the ideas and and things that i was able to pull from the pages and lessons that i learned uh from the overall book along with what the book was about uh hopefully you guys found this interesting uh I was hoping to keep this short, but I knew it was going to be a long one. Uh, so thank you guys very much. Uh, like, share, subscribe, comment. Tell me if you've read this book, what your thoughts were on it. Um, or just kind of uh, share your various thoughts about uh, this whole thing. But thank you guys for stopping in, and I hope you guys had a good day. Goodbye.